Good morning. Let's go ahead and, and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you will join us today as we study and talk about your soon return, that you will enlighten our minds and warm our hearts. Uh, we also want to remember members of our class that can't be here today. There are members that are struggling with health problems, and some are struggling with financial problems, and some with uh, family problems. And we just pray that you will send your, your agencies to intervene in their lives to bring healing and restoration, as you know is best. We pray in our holy name. Amen. Amen. Um, we are looking at lesson number 13. So yes, this is the last lesson in our quarterly Glimpses of Our God, the title, The Promise of His Return. So that means next week we'll be starting, if you don't have it, Evangelism and Witnessing. So be sure and get one for next week. We'll be doing Evangelism and Witnessing. And the uh, title this week is The Promise of His Return. If someone would read for us the memory text, please, which is Revelation 22.12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. When you hear this text, what do you think of the promise to return quickly? That's what I wonder. I threw out two possibilities. Dennis, you had a comment? I guess after listening to that text for more than 60 years... It's something that is designed to entice, but it's always tomorrow, it's tomorrow, it's tomorrow, and you don't really need to worry about it. And that's what we become lulled into, and that's not what it means. Russell. From God's perspective, when you live in, in outside the realm of time, when, when you live infinitely, quickly quickly takes on a whole different meaning as it does to finite creatures. I mean, quickly to God may mean 8,000 years, 10,000 years, 100,000 years. And then we're going to get to that point in a minute. It's a great point. Okay, Kathy? I think there's a couple of things uh, that it can relate to. The first one is, of course, that when we die, it's over. And for each of us, that's a very short time span. And we're going to get to that point in a minute. But the other thing is, he says, and behold, I come quickly. Whenever I seek God, whenever I open myself to God, he comes quickly and his reward is with him for coming quickly. And he gives to everyone according to their works right then and there. Oh, I, I, that's an interesting insight too. And there's another hand over here somewhere. Uh, Tim? Yeah, my comment was just in terms of how it is used uh, as well. And I always felt like it's used uh, coercively to try to pressure people to commit to God right now because it's going to happen quickly. So as I thought about this, I thought, okay, what, what could this mean? One possibility is that this is referring to actual time frame of his return will be quick. In other words, the, the words are referring to mi minutes, hours, days. He's going to come quickly in the, in the uh, lapse of time. But I also thought it could mean that he is doing, when he says, hey, I'm going to come quickly, he's telling you what he's going to be doing and that he's going to do all in his power to return as quickly as possible. In other words, he isn't initiating from his side any delays, but is, in fact, trying to remove all obstacles that would cause delay so that he can return as quickly as is actually possible. In other words, hey, I'm going to go to heaven. It's like if you ever said, said somebody sends you on an errand, hey, I'll be back as quick as I can. Right? And, and you know, they're doing everything they can, but then there was a traffic accident that got in their way, and then there was this thing, but they're going as quick as they possibly can. As he's saying to us that he is doing as much as he can to get back as quick as he can, but there are some obstacles in the way that are slowing him down. 
This is what it maybe I'm thinking could be referring to. Um, if you read in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9, it says, but then this kind of brings in what Russell was mentioning a moment ago. Uh, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, first off, do you think this is poetic? Day is like a thousand years? Or is there some insight going on here? Does this give us awareness as to maybe what I was suggesting, that God that, that there are delays that are delaying his return that he can't forcibly remove? gave us an insight. He doesn't want anyone to be lost. He wants all to come to repentance. Can he forcibly remove that? No. Yes? I think there's another aspect of it too, depending on the situation that we're in, because when you are in love and you have those few, that time with your lover, that time passes very quickly. When you're in pain, it seems like that same amount of time lasts forever. So I think this time to us actually feels longer than it would if things were in their normal state or their right state. Do you think God has created some type of a bubble in which earth operates severed or separated or isolated or insulated from the rest of the universe? Did you understand my question? Do you think Earth in some ways operating in a different sphere, somehow disconnected, separated, insulated, protected in some way from the way the rest of the universe is running? We didn't get to time yet, just in general. Yeah, I mean, didn't, does God's life-giving glory flow freely here on Earth like it does in heaven? No, Earth is definitely disconnected. Remember, whenever Ellen White would come out of vision, what would she say about coming to Earth back, back here? Dark, dark, it's so dark here. Why? What is he talking about? You know, it says in uh, Daniel chapter 7 that when the Ancient of Days takes his throne, rivers of fire come out from him, and the, and the ten thousands and ten thousands stand in this fire. Yes, something is different about earth now. Soon as they, uh, soon as they sinned, they were cold and naked. You know, something changed. Well, I'm suggesting maybe, in fact, God did create some type of a time dilation field where time passes differently and here than where he is. And with, an, with, with Peter, and a day is like a thousand years. The Lord has been gone from his side where time's passing. Two days, it's been you know, 2,000 years here. Time's passing differently. It's, it's a theory in physics, yes. <laughs> Things near a black hole, by the way, time slows down near a black hole because of the intense gravity and theory of relativity, yes. It seems to me that he is speaking to us he is speaking in our language. He doesn't send messages that we can't comprehend. He's talking to us, and he is saying to us, I'm coming quickly. He's not talking to himself. This is not some self-revelation that he's talking to himself. You know, he means this for me and so- for you. And so, you know, what it means, yes, we can grapple with, but I think it needs to be human. I agree with you. I agree. So do you think it means more along the lines then that we can have confidence he's doing all in his power to come as quickly as events will allow? That there are certain obstacles that he's not willing to force. Meaning he could, with his power, choose to come back today if he wanted, 
but there would be a consequence he's not willing to incur, meaning there would be many people who aren't yet ready who could be ready. Uh, is, does that make sense? So his heart is, I'm doing everything I can. I'm going to get there as quick as I can. Is that what you're suggesting? So we can have confidence that he's moving as quick. And then, so Peter's uh, insight then would be the delay is on the part of those who are reluctant to become ready to meet him. He's waiting for us. Yes. When I was reading in, in Ellen White, she said, God's unwillingness to have his people perish has been the reason for his long delay. Yeah, reference. It's 2T, chapter 28, worldliness in the church. Second testimony is second, uh, worldliness in the church. I think that's exactly what Peter says. The same thing. So uh, Thursday's lesson on this idea of quickly, the Thursday's lesson gives us a different potential reason that uh, Kathy was referring to uh, in the uh, last paragraph. It says, in one sense, as far as our own personal experience is concerned, the second coming is as soon as our death. We die, and regardless of how long we are in the grave, two years, 200 years, 2,000, we sleep, and the next thing we know, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, Jesus has returned. And I thought about that, and I thought, do you think when Christ said he would come quickly, he was actually meaning we will die soon, sleep in the grave, be unaware of thousands of years of passage of time, and then we will see him when he returns? I, I personally don't find that comforting or helpful. I don't. I, I think... It's important to remember this reality that at any moment our life could be shut short and we want to be ready to meet Jesus at any moment. That's true. But I don't find it encouraging that his meaning is when you die. And in fact, if you send that message that it means quickly, means that in fact, when you die, you can go be with Christ. If you want to be, if you want to be with Christ quickly, die today. Is there a danger in promoting that message? The way we get to be Christ quickly is by death. That's our, that's our, that's our avenue. That's our pathway. Isn't there a religion that you get some virgins as well if you do that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I don't particularly find comfort in this idea. I think there's truth that we should be comforted to know that we won't spend time in torment and that from the perspective of the person who dies, there's an immediate awareness to, uh, as they're brought back to life. I think there's truth in that. I just don't think that's what his hopeful promise was. Hey, I'm going to go... And prepare a place for you. And if I go, you will die very shortly and come join me. Wait, no. If I go, I will come again and receive you. And, and so when he says, I'm, I'm going to you know, come quickly, I just don't like this idea of trying to spin it into death. Personally. You, I mean, maybe it comforts you. It just doesn't come for me. Yes. Uh, Mrs. White commented that if we had been doing our work... He would have come long ago. And, and, and these comments were made in the late 1800s. So does that mean that, <laughs> if, if we extrapolate that, does that mean that I'm causing his delay or I can hasten his delay? Hasten his return. As the church, I think, think we can hasten his delay. And I, I, hasten his return. His return, I'm sorry. But it, it seems to me that... that that attitude uh, is very egocentric. You know, here we have a few people that can really change God's plan. Of we'll see. Let, let's, let's explore that. Uh, one point, and I think we'll jump into that question, because I, I, I think personally that we can. I'm gonna, I want to give some evidence to think that, in fact, the delay is caused by humans, and humans can accelerate his return. 
and I'll, I'll see if I can show some evidence for that in a minute. But the, the, before we go, I wanted to answer this question. Also, it says, to give everyone according to his work. What do you think that means? To give everyone according to his work. He's coming to give us according to our work. The SDA Bible Commentary says, on this passage, the word work, the Greek is ergon. Can you think of any English words we use that have that same root? Ergonomics. Same word. It means, it means as the same root to, to work and then the mechanics of work, ergonomics. Okay? So, ergon, it says, an act done. The singular number suggests that the word is used collectively of the acts that make up the life as a whole that the person has lived. The effects of the... Now, now notice, so they're talking specifically of this passage. This is the, on this passage, the commentary. He's going to return and give reward according to the works. And they're saying that the singular number means the works of the whole life. And then the next sentence, the effects of the grace of Christ or of the rejection of that grace are also taken into account. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Did you hear that? The singular number suggests that the word is used collectively of the acts that make up the life as a whole and the, that the person has lived. The effects of the grace of Christ or the rejection of that grace are also taken into account when the work of man is examined. Are also taken into account. Interesting. Yes. In the book Maranatha, it makes a statement, the reward will be according to the motives which prompted the action. Did you hear that? I like that. We're, now we're starting to get into something different. So I want to push on with this idea. When you hear this idea that God will give according to his works, according to the works, uh, does this mean that God keeps a list of deeds, acts, works, and if we do good works, we earn from God good rewards, and if we do evil works, we earn from God punishment? Or does it mean something else? Good works affects our character development. Bad works, it does the same. So he doesn't have to look at the works, he looks at the result of our character development. Did y'all hear that? He says, uh, if we do good works, it impacts our character development. If we do bad works, it also impacts our character development. And he's looking at what's happening in our character. I like the direction you're going very much there, John. Um, <clears throat> what about Jesus' parable when he taught, called for workers to work in his field? Remember the parable? The first hour, midday, late hour, all got paid the same. They all got paid. All got paid the same wage, but he was calling them to work in his field. Does God want us to work for him? Do we have a work to do? Yes. Does our work achieve us rewards? Does God pay for our work? Hmm. What, what, what about then when, when, when they asked Christ, what work must we do? And he said in John six twenty seven to 30, uh, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do What must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to tell you what... what <laughs> Russell's smiling because he knows what's going to happen now, but I think you're going to have fun with this today. It goes back to how we understand God's law. And I'm going to take you through the works in a system where God's law is natural 
and the works in a system where God's law is imposed, if, if you exercise natural law, you exercise regularly, which is, how many know that's work to do? <laughs> yes, it is. Is there a reward, however, for exercising regularly? Where, from where does that reward originator come? Where does that reward come? If you exercise regularly and the reward that you receive, where does it come? It's natural. From, it, it, from the law that God designed things to operate upon. Exactly right. It's a natural reward. If you eat healthy foods and avoid toxic substances, which is a diligent work, is it not? Yes, it is. Is there a reward that comes? From where? Being in harmony with the way God designed life. If you love others more than yourself, give of yourself to bless others, is there a reward that comes? Yes? No? And it is. It is. Loving others, look what Christ did. Did he not work and exhaust himself to love others? Yes, genuine love of others is work. Um, Is there a reward, though? And where does that reward come? If you smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, is there a reward slash, maybe we should use the word punishment, that comes? From where does that, quote, reward come? The punishment comes from the natural results of operating outside the way God built life to run. When you step outside his design protocols, outside his law. If you cheat on your spouse, is there a reward slash punishment that comes? From where? Now, while you might think, well, the spouse is going to leave you, uh, that isn't really the true punishment, is it? What is the true punishment? What happens to your character? Your conscience sears, your character warps. You become damaged when you do this. Now, that's if the law is natural. What if the law is imposed? If you pay your taxes honestly, don't cheat on your taxes. You pay your taxes honestly. From where does the re- is there a reward that comes from paying taxes? What is the reward? Fire department, police department, roads, water, sanitation. I mean, all the benefits we get from living in a society, we get those benefits. A reward that comes, yes? From where does that reward come? From the government. The government gives you that reward. How about if you instead cheat on your taxes? Is there a punishment that comes? From where does that punishment come? Imposed from the government. Uh, If you violate traffic laws by speeding, but not the natural laws of physics, in other words, you're driving safe for the standards, Okay, but you're violating the traffic law by speeding more than they posted, and you're caught, is there a consequence, punishment, you might say reward, that comes? From where? From the government. Now, what happens if we mix these laws together? Let's mix them together. If you study regularly for school, regularly study preparations, good study habits, is there a reward that comes? The natural reward is development of your mind, brain circuits, knowledge, wisdom, okay, self-discipline, the imposed rewards, grades and, and graduation, diplomas. Okay? If you cheat in school, is there a reward? What's the natural reward for cheating? Failure. Natural reward. You don't learn. You don't learn, and you warp your character, and you have more anxiety and fear that you're going to get caught. 
Okay, these types of things. Imposed is failure, expelled from school, not able to graduate. That, that same thing goes for the tax one. The tax yeah. Is yeah, it does. Yeah, there are. Yeah. I should have said instead of cheating, I should have just simply said failure to file. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> if you train <clears throat> and compete in the Olympics, natural reward, all the health benefits, self-discipline benefits, impose reward. Any medals you may win, any endorsements you may get for your fame. If you do illegal drugs, reward consequence. Natural, damage to your mind, health, so forth. Imposed? Possibly having medals taken away from you. Medals taken away, prison, fines, all these types of things. So in God's kingdom, how does it work? Do we earn rewards and punishments that are externally imposed by God because his law is an imposed law? Or, when we live in harmony with his law, we automatically get benefits, and when we violate it, we automatically get consequences. And this is uh, from a Christian author that I value in a book called God's Amazing Grace, page 244. Notice how this is stated. In the divine arrangement, in his divine arrangement, through his unmerited favor, the Lord has ordained that good works shall be rewarded. We are accepted through Christ's merit alone, And the acts of mercy, the deeds of charity, which we perform, are the fruits of faith, and they become a blessing to us. You hear what's happening? For men are to be rewarded according to their works. Notice the connection here. When we do good works, those good works become a blessing to us because we are to be rewarded for our good works. Uh, It is the fragrance of the merit of Christ that makes our good works acceptable to God, and it is grace that enables you to do good works for which he rewards us. Our works in and of themselves have no merit. We deserve no thanks from God. We have only done what it is our duty to do, and our works could not have been performed in the strength of our own sinful natures. Now, let's put that in easier language to understand. What do you, what do you hear in here? What do you hear? Well, I changed ordained at the beginning to designed. Nice. God designed or ordained. That's the first thing I got here. God designed or ordained or constructed. What? His universe. To run in harmony with his own character, nature of love. This is how it's built. The natural law. And if you're in harmony with it, you automatically get rewards. Christ, uh, we could do no work. Once mankind was was in sin, we were born in sin, conceived in iniquity, is there any work that we could do to remedy our condition? No. 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 So this is what's talking about Christ's merit. We could do no work to create or generate remedy. Only Christ could do that. Christ's merit or remedy, he achieved and is the only solution to our condition. Thus, God only accepts us healed because remaining unhealed, remaining in a terminal condition, is an unacceptable outcome for God. He does not want to accept our eternal death. Well, and the only thing he can accept is life because death is separation. For him to say, I mean, to say he doesn't accept it means he can't have it. Because it won't work that way. It won't happen. It'd be like saying, we won't accept somebody tying a plastic bag over their head and running a marathon. Well, they can't run a marathon with a plastic bag over their head, so we won't accept it. That's what it is saying. 
because life can't operate outside of harmony with God's design. So when we, and when we partake of the remedy, we actually we partake of Christ. We, he's our remedy. We partake of Him. The Holy Spirit writes on our hearts the law of love. We actually get changed. We get better. We get healthier. Our desires change. Our motives change. We begin to do different works. Rather than works of fear and insecurity to, to get ahead, to protect self, we give works of self-sacrifice. We start helping people. And as we start operating in harmony with His design, all those natural blessings start reinforcing on us and we grow. Yes? So that first quote you read from the SDA Bible commentary, you really should read, the grace of Christ transforms our hearts and minds and characters, and he also takes into consideration our work. Yeah, there you go. I like it. And then, so the next paragraph, the very next paragraph in, in the, uh, in the uh, uh, Amazing Grace 244 says this, we need to bring the light of, and grace of Christ into all our works. We need to take hold of Christ and retain our, our hold on him until we know that the power of his transforming grace is manifested in us. We must have faith in Christ if we would reflect the divine character. Faith in the word of God and in the power of Christ to transform the life will enable the believer to work his works. And what do you hear in that? Legal pardon to take care of your uh, imposed penalty problems or transformation, healing, regeneration. And that changes us. We, we live different lives. I saw a hand right here. Yes, Linda. Like Paul said, I'll show you my faith by my works. It's an out, natural outpouring of the faith he has, which brings in what the Holy Spirit gives him from Christ that creates, that causes the works to happen, like fruit on a tree. It has to have nutrition and then it'll produce fruit. If not, it won't. That's exactly right. But it, back what she said earlier goes to the motives of the heart. So you can do the same external work. Go, let's go down and feed the people at the, at the soup kitchen in Chattanooga because we care about people when a minister. Or we're running for political office and we want votes. Same work, different motive. See? All right, Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, um, the description of our pitiful human condition is honestly uh, correctly painted in Scripture. Bible writers did not always despair, however, because they knew the final outcome. The last chapter in the book of Isaiah and Revelation assure us that the destruction of sin is coming and that God's kingdom will be restored. The last chapters uh, assures us of Isaiah and Revelation that destruction of sin is coming and God's kingdom will be restored. What does this mean? What do you understand God's kingdom to be? It's coming. His kingdom is coming. What do you understand it? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Yes. There's a text that we often, well, different mindsets use to describe different aspects of, of God's kingdom and, and grace. Um, Ephesians 2, 9 and 10. And it's often stated in a legalistic um, forgiveness of sin issue. Um, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves, as a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's how we were created. I love it. That's, that's beautifully stated. And when, when we see it through this lens, doesn't it make sense? If you go back and look at different versions, different versions have different slants based on their understanding of what that means. But it's God created us. That's how he were, we were made. And he's working to recreate us. Right. That's his kingdom being restored. And that's his kingdom being restored. So, God's kingdom is the kingdom of 
love. How will sin be destroyed? Think that. I'm not, I'm not asking for an answer. Just think that through. Because he's coming back to reestablish his kingdom, destroy sin. Where does sin exist or occur? Think this through. Okay, it's going to destroy sin if sin exists in hearts and minds. If sin exists in hearts and minds of intelligent beings, then how can God eradicate it without destroying the being? Can it be done by power, force, or might? What method does he use? Love. Remove the heart of stone and the heart of flesh. And our free will has to allow that. So there has to be some transforming in the attitude, mind, construct of the person. There has to be a healing, regeneration of the heart, yes? What ha- in the U.S. military, it is illegal. It's actually, in the U.S. Code of Military Justice, it is illegal to commit adultery. You can be prosecuted and sent to prison for committing adultery. This has to do with the fact that soldiers going on deployment don't need to be worrying about somebody who didn't get deployed cheating with their wife behind. Okay, so they have a really strict code here that you can be, if you, if you commit adultery in the military, you can be prosecuted. Now what happens if a person in this setting breaks the law, commits adultery, has unprotected sex, and gets HIV infected? What happens if that person believes that their problem is with the government for adultery rather than their problem of being infected with HIV? And so instead of going to the doctor, they hire a lawyer to protect them from prosecution. But they never go to treatment. You see? What happens in the minds and hearts and characters of Christians who are born in sin, conceived in iniquity, if they believe their problem is a legal problem with the government of God, and they accept the legal solution of having Jesus be their lawyer in heaven to defend them and their sins paid by the blood of Christ, but they don't experience transformation of heart. This is what's happening. Does this give us insight into why Christ hasn't returned? Why the delay? Because he wants all to be saved. He wants all to be healed. But instead, people are sleeping in a false security, having their legal problems taken care of when their problem isn't legal. The I've been saved comment. I've been saved. I've been saved. All my sins, past, present, and future, put on Christ, paid at the cross. Accept the payment. Saved. It's a false security. I, I, hey, you know what? I, I got my lawyer, went to court. Uh, my lawyer per, uh, procured a pardon from the judge. I, I'm not going to be pu- prosecuted anymore for my adultery in the military. Still HIV infected. Don't get that taken care of. See a problem here. So Wednesday's lesson asked the question, first paragraph, how do you understand the delay in Christ's second coming? Why hasn't he returned? Christ said in Matthew twenty four fourteen, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. What kingdom? Jesus told Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to present my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. John eighteen thirty six. This is out of a book, another book that I really like, if you've not read it, Christ Object Lessons, page 77. Listen to this regarding this concept of kingdom. What is it? The germ in the seed grows by the unfolding of the life principle which God has implanted. Its development depends upon no human power. So it is with the kingdom of Christ. It is a new creation. Its principles of development are the opposite 
of those that rule the kingdoms of the world. Keep that in mind, the opposite. Earthly governments prevail by physical force. They maintain their domination and their dominion by war. But the founder of the new kingdom is the Prince of Peace. The Holy Spirit represents worldly kingdoms under the symbol of fierce beasts of prey. But Christ is the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. In his plan of government, there is no employment of brute force to compel the conscience. Do you hear that? The Jews looked for the kingdom of God to be established in the same way as the kingdoms of the world. How many Christians are looking for the kingdom of God to be established in the same way? Coming back with a rod of iron to, to put down the nations, to punish wickedness. To promote righteousness, they resorted to external measures. They devised methods and plans. But Christ implants a principle. By implanting truth and righteousness, he counterworks error and sin. So what are the kingdoms of the world based upon? She says survival of the fittest. So what methods do they use? Force, coercive power. And so if a government is using force, coercive power, pressure, what type of law do such governments impose? Oh, I said it. Imposed. Oops, see that? Oops, sorry. Imposed law. What then do we do? What do we do to God's kingdom when we then go out and preach to the world that God has created a law, imposed it to test our obedience, and if we break it, he'll be forced by justice to inflict punishment and torture us and kill us in the end. What do we do to his kingdom when we do that? We destroy it. This is why he hasn't come, because the gospel of the kingdom has not gone to the world. It's the gospel of the beast that has gone to the world. Tim. Can, can you address, like the, since you brought up symbolism and you, you addressed that Christ is represented as a lamb, um, there's also the Lion of Judah, and I've often heard the church present it from the standpoint that the first time Christ came as a lamb, but the second time he's coming as a lion. And I don't, I don't, I mean, there is the symbolism of the lion, so what is that? What's the falsity that there, that, that, that exists there? The, 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 there's no falsity in the symbol of the lion. No, but I mean, the way that their pre- interpretation is what I mean. Right, so how do they present the lion? They present the lion as coming to destroy and devour and destroy. I don't find that in the symbolism. You don't find that in the symbolism. The lion and lamb will lie down together in heaven. Yes. In the, but the, there is a terminology of the he will, rod, he will rule with a, a scepter of rod or a rod of... Uh, Iron. Yes. That, no, that is there. What does it mean, though? What does it mean? How... The, when we think about this, God's two, two types of laws again. Imposed law. If you impose law, is that law changeable with amendments? Yes. yes. So it's not re- the law of respiration, the law of gravity, the law of circulation, these laws that we're, life is built upon. How bendable are those laws? Which law is more like iron that cannot be changed? I'm suggesting to you the rod of iron means that his law is reestablished and it can't waver, it can't change, it can't be bent. Not because of some imposition of authority to punish you if you do, because that's just the way things are built. It can't be done. So that's what I'm thinking it means. Well, I think you need to then take it a step farther because where, where the SDA church, I think, has for so long made a legalistic approach is they, what does God do with sin at the end of time? You know, does he punish it? And if he's going to punish it, 
then obviously there's, you know, it's not, it's now an imposed law. Okay, so let's, let's take your question, incorporate it into a couple of thoughts, and then put it together. It says, so what message from Christianity goes to the world right now? The, the, the gospel, if you, if you go around the world and ask missionaries what they're teaching and, and what's being taught, is it not the message that if you don't accept Christ, ultimately you'll burn in hell? Or if it, God is required to use power to punish sinners, or God will torture the wicked, or if you worship on the wrong day, you will get the mark of the beast and God will throw you in the lake of fire. Or justice demands God inflict punishment upon sinners. I mean, this is not what's taught. Yeah, but he won't burn you very long. Yeah, he won't burn you very long. Just as long as you deserve. Just as long as you deserve. Which, yeah. And which makes God out to be what? So how do we understand this? Yes. I just was going to mention that I think coming from, I think the way they present a lion and like you're saying, the tooth beast and, and, you know, God's ways. Some people see a lion, something scary and mean, but me being a cat lover, you know, I can't wait to be able to pet a lion, you know, just a bigger cat. And so I think that that's the, the way that the beat, that Satan uses is to put fear into people. It's like this lion's going to come to bite you instead of saying this nice lion's going to come down. It's just I think the symbol of the lion is just because a lion's much higher up than a little kitty. That's Strength. I was gonna yeah. say, um, part of, and with that message goes the good news. You can avoid it. Yes. Oh, the, oh, yeah. The good news is God's coming to kill you and torture you and punish you. And and it's even presented this way. You know. You know. Um, I'm not going to take vengeance on you for all the sin you've done because God can punish you much more severely than I can. But I'm looking forward to the day that God... I mean, you've not heard this? Yes. Okay. So how, back to the question then. How do we deal with the text? And you guys know the answer to this. How do we deal with the text of eternal fire and all this kind of stuff? Burning, lakes of fire, and all this imagery in Scripture. We let the Scripture interpret itself. Isaiah 33, verse 14, The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who can dwell with the consuming fire? Who can dwell with the eternal burning? In verse 15, who dwells there? He who walks righteously and keeps his hand away from murder, bribe, and extortion spends eternity in the fire. And what you do if you go through all Scripture, you'll discover that whenever God shows up, his presence is, our God is, a consuming fire. And the lie that Satan has perpetrated upon us, in addition to all this twisted, ugly view of God, is the place you don't want to go, and the place you don't want to be is the place of eternal burning and consuming fire, and that, God, and that place is God's very presence. And the fire that, that, that is God's presence is not fire of combustion, okay, that burns like this wooden podium here. It's the fire of truth and love, the fire of his character. You see, this fire that's coming is going to consume sin. You know, this, my, my quarter is made out of paper. Uh, my, my iPad here is made out of various uh, metals. What is sin made out of? Exactly. It's not made out of physical material. So combustion does not destroy sin. What destroys sin, sin at its root has two elements. What are the root elements to sin? Selfishness and lies. What is it that destroys selfishness? Love. What is it that destroys lies? Truth. And so the Holy Spirit is the spirit of? Truth and love. And so when the Spirit fell, they saw tongues of? fire. So why are some tormented when God reveals himself? When Moses came down off the mountain, his face is reflecting just a little bit of this stuff, a little bit of this glory, this love, this truth is radiating off Moses. No, and Moses, by the way, whiskers weren't burnt. C- catch that. Take a match, put the Moses whiskers. What's going to happen? Whew, okay. No burning of Moses' face, but he's got this fire coming off his face. This is not fire of combustion. Children of Israel see it. What do they do? 
Ah, they're in torment. They can't stand it. Please cover it. Why? Where's their agony coming from? It's not coming from the fire. Where's it coming from? They're unhealed, unhealed characters, sinful natures. Their consciences are committed. The light of truth is shining in, and, and, it's re, and it's revealing to their own awareness the wickedness unhealed in their heart, and they can't stand it. And you've seen this on small micro, microscopic levels when somebody you've tried to present truth to somebody who's doing something that's destructive, and they, don't, they deny, they distort, they don't want to see it, they run from it. Have you not seen this? Yes, what will it be like on the day when God reveals himself? Fully. Will people's denial, distortion, lies continue to hide them from their own condition anymore? No. Yes, they call for the mountains to fall because they can't stand it. Okay, um, back here first, Linda. Well, the text that supports that is Isaiah 9, uh, starting with verse 18. Surely wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It sets ablaze of forest thickets so that it rolls upward in a column of smoke. By the wrath of the Lord Almighty, and the land will be scorched, and the people will be fuel for the fire. No one will spare his brother. Yeah. Uh, Kathy? I think this was just demonstrated very dramatically in Georgia in the last few months. In December, a young man took a young seven-year-old girl, did terrible things, was caught immediately, was put on trial, did not... I mean, when they asked him what his pleading was, he pled guilty was sentenced and put in jail and immediately killed himself. This guy acknowledged what he had done. It was so overwhelming to him. He couldn't deal with it. It was deadly to him. Yeah. And without the grace of Christ, every one of our conditions would be deadly. It's because of what Christ has done. So Christ, so back to this. So Christ's kingdom, we're talking now the, the gospel of the kingdom. Why the delay? The gospel of the kingdom is the kingdom of love. This message, this other thing about an angry, wrathful God who's going to use his power to inflict punishment is a kingdom of the world. And we have represented God as a ruler like Rome. And this is why he hasn't come. His kingdom is the kingdom of selfless love. For God so loved the world, he gave. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us, not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. Uh, created me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit. I'll write my law on their hearts and minds. The whole message of Scripture is God is working to heal and restore through the methods of truth presented in love, leaving people free. These are his methods. So Christ delays waiting for the actual gospel of the kingdom to go to the world. And it is our time, our time, our generation, our privilege, our opportunity to take this message to the world that God is not like Satan or traditional Christianity has made him out to look like. And we will be opposed, but we must not fail. If we would do our job, if we would take this message to the world, Christ will come. I believe that. Do you believe that? Well, I'm inviting all of you to become part and those online of this movement, this ministry, to take this perspective to the world, to challenge and knock down. It's, Christ said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And, and the gates of hell, notice in a, in a confrontation, gates are not offensive weapons. They're defensive weapons. Satan has taken the minds of men through lies and distortions. The truth will set you free. The truth will destroy those gates, those lies that people are locked behind. 
to open minds, to set them free. We have a privilege of doing this. At the end of class today, I'm going to have a couple of people come up. We're going to get some announcements about some things that our, our ministry is about to break into to really help send this message forward, and we're going to need some help to make this happen. So I want to invite you all to be part of that. Questions about any of that? It's exciting, isn't it? Yeah. Thursday's lesson, Thursday's lesson, Paul sets, says, states in Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4, after Christ came, after Christ achieved his victories, after Christ ascended to heaven, Satan couldn't defeat Christ anymore. So what could he do? Attack the minds of men to darken our minds so much that we couldn't benefit from what Christ has done. And this is what he says. Concerning the coming of our Lord uh, Christ and our being gathered to him, uh, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposedly coming from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in that in any way, for the day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Paul is talking about the counterattack to reinterpret and reinvent what Christ did to twist the meaning of what Christ accomplished while he was here so that this man of sin, this distortion of Satan's view of God would be set up in God's temple. What, what temples are we talking about here? You see, in the Adventist church, there's a sanctuary cleansing message. Think this through. After Christ ascended to heaven, after his victory, after his ascension, did this man of sin that Paul is talking about ride up into heaven and, and, and displace God out of his hem- heavenly temple and set himself up there? No, this is not talking about anything happening up there. This is talking about the man of sin setting himself up in the spirit temple through constructs, ideas, distortions about God. This is what has happened. And so there's a prophecy. God prophesied before all these events that 2,300 years from now, the temple will be cleansed. After these lies, after this counterattack, after this distortion, there'll be enough truth recovered that the minds of men can be cleansed from this distorted view of God. And we have the privilege of taking this cleansing message to the world. Satan hates it. He's going to oppose it. And the sad thing is, sometimes I have heard that the thing that distinguishes our church from other churches is the sanctuary doctrine. And we've the, the thing that distinguishes us yes. from misunderstood. Did everybody hear her? She says she's heard that the thing that distinguishes us, the unique doctrine of Adventism, is not the Sabbath or Seventh-day Baptist. It's not the state of the dead. Other churches believe the state of the dead as, as we do. It, 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 it is the distinct doctrine she's been told is the sanctuary message. And how is it presented? How is it presented? That there are record books with a list of all your bad deeds on it in heaven. There's an investigation going on, and the blood of Christ is being applied to those books in heaven. Uh, there are stamping pardon or not pardon. Names are being put in. Names are being taken out. This is what's being... Uh, there's, a, there's a room, smoke you know, of incense of Christ's prayers kind of floating up in there, and this kind of thing. It's all metaphor. It's a metaphor. It's like the song, Power in the Blood. It's a metaphor. Is there actual power in Christ's blood? 
Red corpuscles, white corpuscles, plasma, is there power there? No, the power is in the one who shed his blood. The blood is a metaphor. And you're right, the church has gotten stuck because it came to the equation. Remember, where did all Protestant churches come from? They came out of Catholicism. What was the lens over the mind of all the Protestants as they were beginning to uncover new truth? What was the lens? God's laws imposed. <laughs> I mean, that was their lens. And everything was viewed through this. Rather than going back to the, to the scriptures and the early church fathers before this distortion entered and realizing that that's not what God's law is all about. So we, at the end of time, have the privilege of freeing ourselves from that lens and seeing it through the lens of the character of Christ. It's exciting. All right, Monday's lesson, uh, top dark section up there in Monday's lesson, it says, how does Peter express this hope in 2 Peter 3.13? Why is this hope so central to all we believe? Anybody want to read 2 Peter 3.13 for us? And without this hope, why do we not have any real hope at all? That's what the, the thing is asking, the hope of his return. Nevertheless, we, according to this promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Okay, so we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, and the question is, without this hope, uh, why is it central to what we believe, and without this, why is there no real hope at all? And my question for you is, if there was no second coming, would you live your life differently than you currently do? If there was no second coming. If this is all there is. If there were no speed limits, would you drive differently than you do? <laughs> yes, in some places we would, right? In some place, maybe not every place, but some places we would. Because why? Because we wouldn't have to worry about punishment. If there were no tax laws, would you send a different amount to the government than you send every year? If there were no tax laws. Why? Because you wouldn't have to worry about punishment. So the question is, do we do what we do in our lives today? only because of the avoidance of punishment or the hope of reward. Smoking is legal for adults. Why don't you smoke? Ah, not because the government will punish you, but because you understand that it's destructive. So even if there is no heaven, there's no heaven, would you smoke? No. Okay? Some states have legalized certain uses of marijuana. If it was legal here... Would you use it? No. Why? Because it's destructive. There is no law against poking yourself in the eye with a pen. <laughs> Why don't you do it? Okay? I mean, the point I'm making to you is, back to the question, if there's no second coming, if there is no second coming, given the way God has constructed his universe, is there really a better way to live than in harmony with his methods and principles? No. So are we doing it simply to avoid punishment or to get reward, or are we doing it because it's truly the best way to live? And do we teach our kids this? Well, this is in uh, Christian Education, page 69. Let the youth be led to understand the object of their creation, the object of their creation, to honor God and bless their fellow man. Let them see the tender love for which the Father in heaven has manifested toward them and the high destiny for which the, for which the discipline of this life is to prepare them, the dignity and honor to which they are called even to become sons of God. And thousands would turn with contempt and loathing from the low and selfish aims and the frivolous pleasures that have, that have engrossed their lives. 
they would learn to hate sin and to shun it, not merely for the hope of reward or fear of punishment, but from a sense of its inherent baseness because it would be degrading of their God-given powers and stain upon their godlike manhood. Do we understand that we do what we do so for the same reason we don't smoke? Because it's a stain on my health. It undermines my vitality. Not because there's going to be an extra star in my, he- in my crown if I've never smoked. Do we teach our kids this way of looking at things? Or do we teach our kids, God has a recording angel and he follows you everywhere, except if you go in the movie theater. So if you go in the movie theater, there won't be any record. Think that through. Yeah. Okay. Wow, I can get away with it in the theater, huh? Okay. Keeping track of all the things you do. And one day you're going to have to face life's record. And if you haven't got the blood of Christ applied, well, he will cry as he tortures and kills you. Is this why? Is it what we teach our kids? This is why you don't do what you do. Hmm. Is it any wonder so many kids are leaving the church? Thoughts, questions. Am I being too too harsh here? I mean, growing up um, in Brazil is where I'm from. You know, the, the religion there, it's very traditional, very judgmental. And then I moved to the United States, and I thought I was in heaven as far as the SDA church is concerned. Because, you know, over there, literally, if you've got nail polish, even clear, you're wearing nail polish. What's wrong with you? You know, and I grew up like that. But I grew up seeing both sides because my daddy was Catholic and my mom was Seventh-day Adventist. So, you know, I was wondering, well, why did he never take me to the Catholic church yet? I was baptized as a baby in the Catholic church. So I guess I was blessed to see both sides of the, the church and the Catholic church and the SDA church. But, you know, that that that's still happening nowadays. You know, there's a lot of youth in Brazil and I'm sure here in the U.S. leaving the church because of that because that's the picture of God that I had. (laughs) It was just that, you know, if I wear nail polish, oh my goodness, you know, you're in trouble. You know, he's got a book. And I remember the first time I walked into a movie theater, I was scared to death. I said, my little angel's going to stay out here. You guys sure we can go, you know? I literally thought that as a child and I was already like 14 years old the first time I ever walked into a theater. So so did it bring you more peace or more fear? Oh, fear. Yeah. Yeah, fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. So I, I want to, before we end the class, I, I tried to make a case for this idea that we can do something to hasten the day. What do you think? Can we? Is there something we need to do? Yes. And if our techniques are indeed egocentric, then we're, we're not going to be hastening the day. Yes, of course. The purpose has to be right. I think even salvation can be a selfish thing. I'll trample all over you so I can get saved. Yes. No, I, I've, I've, I've seen scenarios just like that. Just like that. I will not you know, do X, Y, and Z because I don't want to break the Sabbath, even though somebody's maybe starving. You know, this type of thing. Yes. Can you touch briefly on where the sins are blotted out? I think there's a lot of confusion out there as to where the sins are going to be blotted out, from the records in heaven or... Excellent. Thank you so much for asking that question. I appreciate it very much. What did we say earlier? Where does sin occur? So when God says, I'm going to, to, to blot your sin out, throw it as far as the east is from the west, 
he wants to blot the sin out of your character, out of your mind, out of your heart. He wants to transform you. And so the records in heaven, as I understand them, used to be conceptualized as medical records. Medical records will, di- will, will have all the documentation of the illness and disease. They will also document the treatment to the patient, and they will document the cleansing and the healing and the remission of uh, the, the, the cancer, or in this case, the sin. So the records will reflect all this, but the only way we make changes in the heavenly records is by letting the Holy Spirit make changes in the heart, mind, and character. So it's blotting out in the person wickedness, sin, rebellion, fear, selfishness, and that is reflected because what's recorded in the record books is an exact transcript of your character. That's what's recorded there. Yeah? That's a great question. Does that answer it? remain there in order to exonerate God, to show that he did everything he could. Oh, yes, exactly right. They remain there for those who weren't saved. Those records are there not to, to prosecute the wicked, but for when you get there and somebody you know is not there, you can go and look and God said, look, there's nothing more I could have done. And here's the whole history of their life perfectly recorded. And look at all the millions of things I did to try and heal them, but they refused at every turn. And to carry that on with the, the example that you used, as with a medical physician, that record is there to exonerate. I did everything for the patient. I did what I was supposed to do. So. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, now let's, uh, I have a passion to have this message go forward. This is what this ministry is all about. And we are partnering with some other people to help this ministry go forward. First announcement, Jim, would you come up and, and tell us what we're doing? Jim is the president and founder of uh, HeartWise Ministry, Dr. Jim Markham. And we, our, our ministry has partnered with him for some exciting things that are going to unfold. Well, thank you for giving me a few moments of your time. Now, as I was sitting here, I couldn't help but feel the Holy Spirit calling a group of people into action. You know, it's nice to hear this and to grow in the relationship, but it's, the next step is to do something with this that we've had. This is the gospel. And at first I want to say thank you for common reason, for, for partnering with HeartWise Ministries. Our board and our staff want to thank you. And for they're already helping us financially and also help with supporting this book that we just put out called The Ultimate Prescription, which last week was rated 28th in healthcare books in the United States. And it basically, for those of you who've read it, it's a simplistic message of what you're talking about here. Um, we at HeartWise have been going on for five years because we believe that the medical message, the healing message, has been called and been prophesied at the end of time as a way to move the correct interpretation of the gospel to the entire world. So we've really concentrated on building a platform in the media. We have a television, radio, um, internet platform where we'd say there's a place for modern medicine, but it doesn't fix everything. I'm a cardiologist, but the, the stents and the bypasses doesn't take away the disease. There's a place for lifestyle. There's a place for eating right and exercise, but that doesn't fix all the problems. My counterparts, Dr. Oz and Dr. Amon, present this very well. But what no one else is presenting on a major scale is that what really is the ultimate prescription is that relationship with the Heavenly Father. That is the ultimate path to healing. But within that relationship, as we bring people to that relationship, we have to have the correct interpretation of the relationship, a correct interpretation of the gospel. If we don't have that, we, we bring them to a relationship that's taking them to the wrong place. So at HeartWise Ministries, we've done a good job of bringing people into this idea because of relationship. And we teach people that sometimes that relationship, it might look different from, uh, for different people. 
And so far, we've taken our criticism. The modern medicine people don't like us because we can't. We don't say we can fix everything with technology. The lifestyle people sometimes don't like us because we can't eat our way to, 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 to help, or we can't eat our way to healing, or we can't exercise our way to healing. The denominations don't necessarily care for us because we don't take people to a denomination. And many people in denominations are being destroyed by denominations. So we have been looking for people to partnership with to help in the development of this relationship. So as I've gotten familiar with um, Dr. Jennings and Cumming Reason and what's going on here, I realize that this is something that's very unique, what's going on in this room. Our ministry mainly reaches the Gentile world. That's who we're meeting. So what we have set up coming up in the next few months, we need volunteer help. Specifically, we just finished building a television radio studio. We're going to have an open house on April the 5th from 5 to 7 of our new studios if anyone would like to come. Well, you say, well, the new television studio, what's that for? Well, that's for taking this message to the world through um, different partnerships we've developed with television networks like Retro, Dish and Direct Network, My Family Life. Um, we're actually even able to, I'm in negotiations with an Adventist network to put this program on them, two different ones. Um, and that's a real challenge, it's taking a lot of prayer. Now, luckily, our ministry has been able to be friends with everybody, you know? Even though we don't get a lot of financial support, we, no one dislikes what we say. But what we want to do is we have to have a place to take, when we bring people to a relationship, they have to have somewhere to go. And that's what we want to do, have other ministries that we can partnership, which will give them the correct presentation of the gospel. And let the Holy Spirit take that individual. The worship for them might be out in the woods. Okay, It might be out in the woods sitting in a boat. It might be in a church. It might be studying the Word. For the 20 to 30% of people that, that can't read, it might be listening to video or watching a television presentation or watching a movie. So we presented with them. So we, we're going to start a television program. It'll be Heart of Health Live. It's going to be the only live healing program that's live every week from Thursday from 7 to 8 o'clock on Thursdays on all these networks where we're going to interview people. We're going to also you know, answer their health questions, meet their acute care needs, but also let them know about this relationship that's a path to healing that gives you the power to change your habits. But within that program, we have to have somewhere to take them. So we're hoping that we can develop products from our commercials, from Common Reason, that we can take them to a greater relationship with the Father. How many homes do you expect this program to broadcast into by the end of the year? Yeah, we will be all over North America immediately. And if it gets on um, the major satellites, it'll go into every speaking English country in the world. No one else is doing a live calling. People like reality TV. We did a trial on um, a network recently, Sky Angel 2, and during that one hour, we had 1,000 live calls, and we had, we had an audience of 176,000 people. That's just from a small network. People are hungry for truth. And, and in this partnership, we have a presence on their website. We're going to be a periodic guest on, on the show where people will take our call because there's a lot of need for mental health, not just physical health. He's doing a broader range than what we do. We do the mental piece. So we'll be the guest to come in on the mental piece of it. And he needs volunteers, though. Tell him specifically what volunteers yeah. you need. It takes about eight people to run a live program. 
So we're hoping to develop three or four teams of eight people that can come in and help with the cameras, the closed captioning, the audio, the video. And it's going to be very streamlined. Telephones? Yeah, telephones. We're going to have people call in, screening calls. You know, you can't just let anyone answer, you know, ask a question live. Now, we have delays and all sorts of things like that. But we're going to need teams of eight people that can come in. We will do the training. The time commitment will be about from 6.45 to um, 8.15, one or two Thursdays a month. And that's it. That's it for that commitment. This really is the gospel. And we have an opportunity. This is an avenue the Lord is opening for us to take this message that we just talked about that can now immediately be penetrating all of North America and very soon potentially all the English-speaking countries of the world. And for an hour and a half uh, a week, we need some volunteers. And it's really non-threatening because we're just meeting their needs, directing to a relationship. Within the commercial breaks, we will feature other ministries that can take them to the next step. The second thing we need is in October... Right here in Chattanooga, we've reserved the Chattanooga Convention Center to do a conference called Modern Medicine, Biblical Technology, and the Brain. And we're going to put that on for all of Chattanooga, and it's going to be filmed. And we're hoping to have, of course, that's a major presentation when you have a lot of people come to that. But Dr. Jennings and, and myself, we're going to be putting this on with these concepts from a healing perspective to a broader base in Chattanooga. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have provided not only this truth about you and your kingdom of love, but you are opening avenues uh, for, for this message to go forward. We, we ask that you will uh, bless uh, Dr. Markham and HeartWise Ministries, that uh, they will continue to have success as uh, they are negotiating for more, uh, more opportunities and platforms to send this message forward. And we pray that you will, will uh, bless those in this class who are going to be involved in, in their volunteering, their time, as they give their heart to you to share this message, that, that we will have a group together that we can really come into that harmony of the upper room. We pray in your holy name. Amen.